The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4 The Medieval World Episode 1 The Rashidun Caliphate Arabia, the geopolitical region centred on the Arabian Peninsula, the largest peninsula on planet Earth. Much of the peninsula is arid desert and generally difficult to settle due to a lack of fertility of the land. Compare this to the land north of the Arabian deserts where we encounter the fertile crescent, including the heavily talked about lands of Mesopotamia and the Levant. To the west of the Arabian Peninsula is the Red Sea, the waterway which has been an important trade link between the Mediterranean Sea and the lands of South Asia and the Far East. The Red Sea separates the Arabian Peninsula from the African lands of Egypt with its rich and prosperous history by comparison. To the south and to the east, the vast expanses of water, including the Arabian Sea and the Indian Ocean. Arabia didn't have a lot going for it, which is what makes this week's episode so amazing. Settlements developed in Arabia, and many were coastal. The kingdoms which grew up were not really of any global significance, and somewhat detached from the many centuries of drama going on to its north, such as the conflicts between the earliest kingdoms and empires of the Middle East, through to the many confrontations between the Persians and the Europeans. The earliest Arabs were mainly nomadic peoples without great military threat. At the most, they were raiders and traders during ancient times and classical antiquity. We have discussed ancient trade in previous episodes, including the maritime Silk Road, which grew in abundance after the emergence of heightened activity on the Silk Road between Rome and China. Arabian coastal societies would have been able to take advantage of their geographical proximity to this highly navigated waterway. Many precious metals and stones were transported along this waterway, including popular spices from the lands of the east. Another desirable product was incense, such as frankincense and myrrh, with their attractive and relaxing aromas. 
the incense trade route was fruitful for cities such as Petra, which came under the control of the Nabataeans, who themselves were of Arabian stock and skilled at defending their arid territory, at least until the Romans were at their most powerful. During the first half of the first millennium, coastal Arabians were able to take advantage of the trade opportunities passing their way. The Nabataeans were based at the northern end of the Red Sea, but at the southern end, an Arabian kingdom of the Himyarites grew more powerful, occupying the lands roughly equivalent to the modern country of Yemen. The Himyarites were able to subjugate one of the better established Arabian peoples for many centuries known as the Sabaeans. This strong Himyarite kingdom flourished until they were invaded from the other side of the Red Sea by Ethiopian peoples called the Aksumites. The Aksumites occupied lands on the Arabian Peninsula until they were removed by Persians from the Sasanian dynasty, who had also taken control of other Arabian societies on their own borderlands in the north of the peninsula. The Himyarite lands in the south of the peninsula were under the control of the Sasanian Persians, and the former lands of the Nabataeans in the north were occupied by Arabian peoples called the Ghassanids, who spent most of their time under the subjugation of the Eastern Roman Empire. In the middle of these two Arabian peoples was a city called Mecca, located halfway down the Arabian Peninsula's Red Sea coast. Mecca is the location of the shrine called the Kaaba, which predates the emergence of Islam and was likely to have been a meeting place for many people. Mecca and the Kaaba were under the control of an Arabian tribe called the Quraysh. One of the clans of the Quraysh was the Banu Hashim, and in around the year 570, a man called Abu al-Qasim Muhammad ibn Abdullah ibn Abd al-Muttalib ibn Hashim was born into the Banu Hashim clan, and this man would become one of the most important and influential men to have ever lived. Muhammad With the city of Mecca becoming ever more prosperous with the heightened trade in precious metals, eclipsing the already healthy incense trade, some of the nomadic Bedouin tribes of Arabia, the traditional Arabs of the desert lands of the peninsula, were becoming urbanised, thanks to the wealth generated. The trade at Mecca was being controlled by the Quraysh tribe, and when Muhammad came of age, he would be able to earn a living as a merchant in Mecca. Predominantly, many of the Arabs observed their traditional pagan polytheistic religious beliefs. If we backpedal back to the 4th century, we are aware 
of religious developments in the Eastern Roman Empire where Christianity was becoming so important that the Nicene Creed was created to standardise Christianity within the vast empire. However, as can be very natural with a widespread religion, schisms often develop throughout history that can bring about tension and conflict among a religion's followers. In the 5th century, an Archbishop of Constantinople called Nestorius started teachings considered to be highly controversial and condemned by many other Christian bishops. His teachings were officially condemned at the Council of Chalcedon in 451, but Nestorianism prospered in some of the Asiatic lands of the Eastern Roman Empire. One of the key teachings was that Jesus Christ was actually just a man who preached the word of God rather than actually being an incarnation of God, as the Catholic Church believes. Muhammad in Mecca would have encountered Nestorian Christians in his lifetime. He may have been inspired by these people who made him think differently about the universe around him than the pagan society he came from did. Muhammad was around 40 years of age when he saw a vision of the Abrahamic archangel Gabriel after having his heart impregnated by the words of God. He would convey the story of his ordeal to his wife Khadija, who was actually almost a generation older than Muhammad. Khadija reassured her husband and encouraged him, therefore becoming his first disciple. Muhammad recited the words of God that had apparently been delivered to him by the Archangel Gabriel. The recitation, otherwise known as the Qur'an, to give it its Arabic name, was recorded and remains the central religious text of Islam. The Qur'an is a direct recording of the recitation and differs from the Bible in that the Bible is a collection of ancient scriptures. Many Meccans were inspired by the preachings of Muhammad and he started collecting followers. This was a concern for the elite in Mecca, who saw this development of Abrahamic monotheism as a threat to the city's equilibrium. It's important to note that even though Muhammad may have been inspired by preachers of an alternate form of Christianity, that his preachings are considered distinct. His followers were called Muslims and their submission to the teachings of God is called Islam. The Arabic word for God is Allah. The prosperous trading city of Mecca was essentially a plutocracy where the wealthiest were in control of the affairs of the city. Muhammad was preaching a message higher than his own human self and could care no less if his monotheistic message upset the wealthy pagan rulers of Mecca, fearing that the growing number of Muhammad's followers 
might change the priorities of the population with his spiritual code. It soon became obvious that Mecca could not sustain both ways of life. The elite in Mecca were opposed to Muhammad, and Muhammad recognised that he had reached his limits in Mecca. It was time for him to look beyond his home city. To avoid severe persecution, Muhammad and his followers ventured out of the city and into the harsh countryside looking for a new home. Their destination would be the city of Yathrib, around 450 kilometres north of Mecca, and a city with a Jewish contingent, seemingly more religiously tolerant. This migration has taken a very significant role in fundamental Islam, seen as a necessary demonstration of devotion to Islam called Hijrah. Muhammad's Hijrah to Yathrib was his escape from persecution and likely assassination by the Meccans, and his destination of Yathrib was selected thanks to an invitation. The establishment of a Muslim community in the city of Yathrib has been dated to the 16th of July, 622. And this is seen as the first day of the Islamic calendar. Yathrib may have been living in the shadows of Mecca for some time, and this may have provided the motivation to invite the Muslims to their city. Yathrib certainly benefited from Muhammad's Hijrah and the construction of the Al-Masjid and Nabawi Mosque took place soon after Muhammad's arrival as a place of Islamic worship. The city of Yathrib is now known as Medina, but it assumed its modern name after the lifetime of Muhammad. Medina Yathrib was undergoing political difficulties at the time of Muhammad's arrival following his secret escape from Mecca. Muhammad would act as a mediator and built the basis of a theocracy which was a society based on a loyalty to God unlike the Meccans who were loyal to wealth. Trading caravans travelling from Mecca to Yathrib were raided and the Meccans began to realise that Muhammad's Yathrib was starting to become a problem. Muhammad himself held onto an idea that the Meccans could be preached to and that it could still ultimately see the value of Islam. The Meccans sought to take military action against Yathrib. Muhammad would lead Yathrib's army against the Meccans, controlled by the tribe of Muhammad's own heritage, the Quraysh. The Meccans would come up short against Muhammad's Muslims and were not able to advance on Yathrib when they did create an opportunity for themselves. This meant that the Meccans were obliged to make a truce 
with Muhammad. During this period of truce, Muhammad appealed to the Jews in Yathrib to support him, citing their monotheistic similarities. But the Jews would accuse Muhammad of misinterpreting the word of God and show reluctance to accept his leadership. Muhammad and the Muslims felt that it was actually the Jews that had been misinterpreting the word of God all along. And so a period of Jewish persecution within Yathrib took place. Muhammad's devotion to Islam and his desire to honour the instruction of the Archangel Gabriel to preach the word of Allah would lead him to instigate a pilgrimage to Mecca, the city of his origin. The Quran would claim this pilgrimage to Mecca, referred to as the Hajj, as something linked to the journeys of the biblical character Abraham. It was probably at this point that the power of Muhammad was realised, with his followers able to create an army of over 10,000 individuals. After this initial hajj, the Meccans may have felt no option but to stand up against the Muslims and their allies, and in doing so they broke the truce between them and Yathrib. Muhammad decided to journey to Mecca once again, but this time it would be with aggressive intent. The year was 630, or the eighth year after the Hejira, and over 10,000 Muslims travelled to Mecca. While the army camped outside Mecca, Muhammad would request a meeting with the highly respected leader of the Quraysh tribe and a man who had led the Meccans into battle against the Muslims before. His name? Abu Sufyan. It is suggested that Abu Sufyan recognised the very real threat of the Muslims and recognised that the pagan gods had demonstrated their insignificance by comparison to Allah's own Muslims, who were clearly in the ascendancy. It is said that Abu Sufyan converted to Islam on the eve of the battle and that his house was designated a sanctuary as a consequence. The Meccans were unable to prevent the Muslim conquest of the Quraysh tribe and their city. The Muslims would destroy all pagan idols at the Kaaba shrine and it would represent Islam from this point onwards. Jews within the city of Mecca were expelled as they were seen as opponents and persecutors of Jesus of Nazareth. The Muslims still considered Jesus to be a prophet of God, even though they didn't consider him to be an incarnation of God like the Catholic Church in Europe. The conquest of Mecca would demonstrate to Arabs throughout Arabia that there was now one dominating power to be recognised and respected, and many would understand the word of Allah to be the most powerful word. 
there would be battles between the Muslims and other Arabic tribes in their desire to spread the word of Allah, and there would be mass conversions as a consequence. The Hajj pilgrimage to Mecca during the truce between Yathrib and Mecca was now determined to be a holy pilgrimage which Allah would instruct Muslims to undertake to demonstrate their devotion to Islam. In the year 632, at the age of 62, Muhammad died in the city of Yathrib, the location of his power base after his exile from Mecca. His body was placed in a tomb on the grounds of the Al-Masjid al-Nabawi Mosque in Yathrib that mosque that Muhammad built on his first arrival in the city. The city of Yathrib itself would be renamed Medina in respect of its Islamic enlightenment. In Mecca, the shrine called the Kaaba became the centrepiece of an Islamic mosque called the Masjid al-Haram, the final destination for all future Hajj pilgrimages. Prayers originally conducted in the direction of the holy Abrahamic city of Jerusalem were now redirected to the direction of Mecca in respect of the true Abrahamic religious god worship that had apparently been misconstrued by Jews and Christians alike. Muhammad was recognised as an Islamic prophet of God and would join Jesus the kings of Israel, David and Solomon, Moses and Abraham, as well as many other biblical characters who were in those ranks. Muhammad was Allah's last prophet, but he was also the man who instigated the powerful religion of Islam, which was not identified as a specific religion before his lifetime, although Muslims retrospectively recognise that it had always actually existed. Muhammad's Islam may well have been popular for bringing a humane side to life in Arab lands that was otherwise harsh. With financial activity comes corruption and the power-hungry plutocrats of Mecca were the antithesis of Muhammad's piety. Muhammad opposed brutal Arabian customs such as female infanticide and preached a way of living that was honest and humble and was part of a fair and just society. The traditions and practices of the Prophet Muhammad are referred to as the Sunnah and is the etymological root of the word Sunni which is the most dominant branch of Islam in the world today. The Rashidun Caliphs With Muhammad's death came the requirement for a new strong rule, as we already know that with the death of a great leader, there comes an inevitable wave of challenge to debilitate the power of the movement. Whoever was to take over would have to keep the Muslims together in their common cause and consolidate the gains achieved by Muhammad. 
there are opposing views about what happened next, and it is this conflict of opinions which divides the Muslim world right up to this very day. Sunni Muslims maintain that control of the Islamic world rightfully came down to the Rashidun Caliphs, with Rashidun meaning rightly guided. A caliph is specifically a leader of Muslims, similar to a king or an emperor. Members of the Quraysh tribe gathered at a building called the Sakifa in Medina and elected Muhammad's father-in-law and one of his closest confidants as the first caliph, his name Abu Bakr. However, not all Arabs would accept Abu Bakr as the spiritual successor to Muhammad, with others claiming a divine right to be the true caliph. What followed was a period of conflict called the Rida Wars. The Rashidun Caliphate under the rule of Abu Bakr put down the rebellions of these false pretenders as successor to Muhammad and Abu Bakr cemented the respect and unity of most Muslims. During the reign of Muhammad, a Muslim emissary had been sent northwards into Ghassanid territory, traditionally part of the Sasanian Persian Empire, but now subject to the Byzantines. The emissary was murdered, and a Muslim army was defeated there in the aftermath. Now, Abu Bakr wanted to avenge this defeat, and after originally having to abort these plans to put down the Arab rebellions during the Rida Wars, he was now ready to head northwards again. However, before engaging with the Byzantines, Abu Bakr sent his military commander, Khalid ibn al-Walid, to Mesopotamia to do battle with the Sasanian Persians there, before turning their attention to the Syrian provinces of the Byzantines. This is almost unbelievable when you consider the sheer might of the Byzantines and the Sasanians in terms of world politics. But the key thing here was the fact that the Byzantines and the Sasanian Persians had weakened each other through constant warfare, giving the Muslims a great opportunity to exploit the situation. However, Abu Bakr would not see or enjoy the glory of Muslim success when in 634, after just two years as the first Islamic caliph, Abu Bakr died from illness. As his illness worsened, he would name another of the Prophet Muhammad's father-in-laws as his successor, and his name was Omar ibn al-Khattab. Abu Bakr had successfully created an Islamic state spanning the entire Arabian Peninsula. Omar Omar became the second Rashidun Caliph at around the age of 50 in the year 634. Omar's legacy as a great Muslim leader is made all the more incredible as he had vehemently opposed Muhammad many years before and 
been involved in the persecution of Muslims. He converted while in his early 30s and his legacy is now considerable. Where Abu Bakr before him was described as a humble man, Umar much more resembles a powerful statesman and national leader. When Omar ascended to be the Caliph, Khalid was already winning a military siege of the Byzantine city of Damascus. The fall of Damascus would be concerning for the Byzantines who were in danger of losing their land route to their North African provinces. The bigger danger for Omar was the Sassanid Persians, however, and he would have to give considerable respect to the threat before throwing all of his weight behind the invasion of the Byzantine Levant. The other issue for Omar was whether an invasion of foreign territory was ethical. However, he would justify this by declaring that all non-Muslim societies were evil for not living to the word of Allah. The decisive battle on the Levant took place near the Yarmouk River after the Byzantines sent an emergency force into Syrian lands to curb the progress of the Muslims. Khalid found himself in the front line again despite the fact that Omar was favouring another general as his number one military man. Khalid drew the Byzantine army southwards where reinforcements awaited. After six days of battle, the Muslims were victorious and the Byzantines were pushed out of their Syrian lands cutting their land access off from their lucrative lands of Egypt and the Christian holy city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was put under siege in 636 and reached a state of surrender in 637. The Christian patriarch Sophronius would only offer his surrender to the Caliph Omar himself, and so Omar entered Jerusalem without ceremony to accept his surrender. The Christians in Jerusalem were generally of a sect that was not in favour of the Byzantines since the Council of Chalcedon had dismissed the monophysite attitudes that were observed by many Christians in Jerusalem itself. So when Islamic conquerors entered the city, it may have become a liberating experience as the Rashidun Caliphate displayed a level of religious tolerance to both Christians and Jews together that had not been seen before in the city itself. This might be surprising considering the statement that justifies Almar's invasions of the lands of the Byzantines and the Sassanids that non-Muslim societies can be regarded as evil. However, the reason for the tolerance is because the Christians in Jerusalem had submitted to the Muslims and were therefore not permitted to be persecuted. Omar would show respect to the Christian Church of the Holy Sepulchre that had been constructed by the Roman Emperor Constantine the Great after his mother, Elena had discovered 
the tomb of Jesus Christ. He would allow the Christian church to remain and chose to pray outside where the mosque of Omar was constructed at a later time right next to the church. Egypt had come under the control of the Roman Empire after Octavian, later Emperor Augustus, took control of the land after driving Pharaoh Cleopatra VII from her throne. It would therefore come under the control of the Byzantines organically because the eastern provinces of the Roman Empire, which included Egypt, became part of the Eastern Roman Empire, synonymous with the Byzantines. Centuries of Roman rule in Egypt were interrupted at the beginning of the 7th century when the Sasanian Persians briefly gained control of Egypt before the Byzantines pushed them back out again. Now that the Muslim Caliphate had control of the Levant, the Byzantine land route to Egypt had been cut off. The man who was responsible for the recovery of Egypt from the Sassanids was Emperor Heraclius, who had got the upper hand on the Persians during their exchanges. The Muslims would first target the important strategical gateway Egyptian city of Pelusium, site of two great Achaemenid Persian victories over the Egyptians during classical antiquity. Although the Muslim army was suggested to be low in numbers at around 4,000, they would also be joined by many Bedouins as well as local Islamic converts of differing ethnicities. Cyrus of Alexandria was the prefect of Egypt, but he didn't seem to have the guts for the fight with the Muslim invaders. This would not be received well by Cyrus's top men who chose not to surrender to Omar's caliphate, and this justified the continuation of the attempted conquest of Egypt. Simultaneously, the armies of the Rashidun Caliphate also kept the pressure on the Sasanian Persians, weakened by warfare with the Byzantines in the preceding decades. Khalid ibn al-Walid had already taken Iraqi lands from the Persians during the reign of Abu Bakr, but Omar continued the pressure by gradually muscling in on the rest of the Persians' Mesopotamian lands in the later years of the 630s. In the early 640s, it became clear that the Muslims had both the Egyptians and the Persians on the back foot simultaneously, which seems like quite a terrific achievement considering the might and reputation of these lands. Continued advances in Egypt had led the Muslims to the key city of Alexandria, which found itself under siege in 641. After a few months of defiance, Alexandria fell, and the lands of Egypt were now in Arab hands. The following year, another Rashidun Caliphate military force advanced from Mesopotamia, towards the Iranian plateau, where it would meet a Sasanian army defending the lands of their king, Yazdegerd III, who seemed to be getting pinned back into Iranian lands by Muslim advances. 
Yazdegerd's situation was not helped by having his northern borders attacked by the Turkic peoples of the Eurasian steppe. The Rashidun army met the Sasanians at Nahavand, and despite the Muslims having been outnumbered, they defeated the Persians, although there are differing accounts regarding the details. What we do know is that this was quite a fateful defeat for the Sasanians, who had now lost vast swathes of their territory to the Muslims and were now on the brink of complete collapse. Certainly this victory destroyed Sasanians' centralised rule as the main army had been crushed and left the entire empire fragmented. Despite Arabian conquests of huge chunks of Byzantine and Sasanian lands, thanks to the weakness of both entities following years of military conflict with each other, there was no great programme of Islamisation of these new territories outside of the Arabian heartlands of the Caliphate. Initially, it was mainly tax money that the Arabs took from their conquered lands. While there was relative peace, there would be tax money. In the year 644, while in Medina, the Caliph Omar dismissed the complaint of a Persian slave who was captured while an enemy soldier at the Battle of Nahavand, when he protested about his mistreatment by his master. The following day, the slave tracked down Omar at his morning prayers and stabbed him six times, mortally wounding him. The slave, named Abu Lulu, committed suicide following this murderous act. Omar's legacy to the Arabs is that he was decisive, aggressive and clear-thinking. He reformed the taxation system, especially for conquered territories, although we're not sure how well this was policed, which may have been quite welcome to some of his new subjects. We know that garrison towns were created for Arabs to live in within conquered territory without fear of reprisals from resentful locals. Omar would also advance military recruitment policies with a style of conscription into a state-run army where the individual would be paid for his service. After Omar The leadership of the Arabs was somewhat monopolised by the Quraysh tribe who were set on ensuring that one of their own would remain in charge. You may recall at the beginning of the episode that we stated that Muhammad was one of the Banu Hashim clan within the Quraysh tribe. Muhammad's son-in-law was also a member of the Banu Hashim clan called Ali ibn Abi Talib and he was put forward to be Omar's successor but it would be another man from the Banu Umayyah clan called Althman ibn Affan, who would be elected over Ali, among others, by an electing committee. The Banu Umayyah clan, otherwise known as the Umayyads of Mecca, 
were one of the wealthiest clans of Mecca, which, as a plutocratic city, could be classed as the aristocracy of the city. Certainly when the Umayyads converted to Islam during Muhammad's lifetime, it was a significant event as the Umayyads had originally opposed him. The election of Uthman over Ali could have been with a desire to appease the wealthy Umayyads. Uthman did not have the same kind of authoritative character as his predecessor Almar, but he did continue with the policy of expansion and conquest. Further consumption of the territory of the Sassanids, who were as good as destroyed by the time of Althman's reign anyway, resulted in the unceremonious assassination of the last Sassanid king, Yazdegerd III, in the year 651. All of the lands up to the Indus Valley were now in the hands of the Rashidun Caliphate, as well as Armenian lands to the north. Expansion across the whole of North Africa took place, including the city of Carthage and some of the Numidian and Mauritanian lands which would come to be known as the Maghreb, now that it was linked to Arabic culture. Althman's policies of looking after his family and his political elite estranged him from his armies though, and tensions within the caliphate began to surface. The lack of wealth filtering through was possibly a lot to do with the Rashidun Caliphate's imperial reach now being overstretched. However, Althman was accused of nepotism by many who felt that the Caliphate was not enjoying the rewards of its expansion as much as it had done under Almar. Soon there were rebellions against the Caliph emanating from Iraq and Egypt. And although Althman sought a peaceful resolution with these rebels, there was too much dissension within the caliphate to prevent Althman's ultimate fate when a group of rebels slew him down at his own home while he was clutching the Quran. It would be Ali, the political opponent of Althman from when he was first elected, that would become the caliph in Althman's place. Ali would set to work to try to displace the corrupt governors who had been exploiting Althman's kindness for their own benefit, but it soon became clear that Ali would have bigger problems when the Umayyad governor of Syria, Muawiyah, who was the son of Abu Sufyan, the opponent of Muhammad who converted to Islam on Muhammad's return to Mecca, demanded that there be repercussions for those who were responsible for the death of the Umayyad Caliph Althman. Ali would face revolts if he acted, and revolts if he didn't, so he was in an impossible situation. Muawiyah would approach one of Muhammad's wives, Aisha, the daughter of the first Caliph Abu Bakr, Aisha was still highly influential and a supporter of the Egyptian rebels who rose up against Uthman. But she too was keen to see the murderers of Uthman brought to justice. So under the influence and direction of Muawiyah and Aisha, 
the Syrians and the Egyptians would be ready to stand in opposition to Ali, should he not bring the assailants to justice. Ali chose inactivity, and so civil war broke out. The civil war within the Rashidun Caliphate is called the First Fitna, and it would usher in the next period of Islamic caliphates, and it would also be fundamental to the greatest schism in Islam, which is still important to many Muslims in the modern world. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast, the first episode of Volume 4, the introduction of the Rashidun Caliphate and the introduction of the Prophet Muhammad of the Islamic culture. Now, uh, next week we're going to be continuing the story of the Islamic Arabs by telling you the story of the Umayyad uh, dynasty of of Arabia, basically, we're going to be seeing how the uh, Islamic culture spread throughout um, a lot of the known world. So, really, um, quite an, an interesting period in medieval culture and history, and also um, a, a real golden age for the Middle East after so many years of talking about European culture uh, during Volume 3 and how the advances made there was significant. We now see a complete switch now with the rise of the Islamic cultures now at the forefront of uh, the world and world politics, world culture, if you like. And um, we see this really as a central hub now. While the while the European nations collapse into dark ages, we, we see a difference now in, in, in this area of the world. So, And we're going to be telling the story of that in the next couple of weeks. The Ancient World Cup. So those of you that listened to the uh, podcast last week about the Mississippian culture will be familiar with the uh, introduction of a new feature on the History of the World podcast called the Ancient World Cup. And just to give you a brief outline as to what the Ancient World Cup actually is, it's going to be a, a weekly poll um, Give, uh, given out to the History of the World podcast listeners on uh, various podcast uh, or social media platforms, I should say. Um, I certainly know that I'm going to be posting it on Twitter, uh, but I'll also let you know where else I'm posting it as well. But if you follow me on Twitter, then you'll be able to take part and, and hopefully I'll find a way to distribute it to the Facebook group. But um, what we're essentially doing, we're trying to find out the best culture of the ancient world and this is not going to be judged by me it's going to be judged by you guys and I've carefully selected 64 ancient teams that are going to be entered into this competition and for details of that um, you can go to the history of the world podcast.com website and uh, there you will see uh, the 64 teams listed uh, but a draw was made uh, so that those 64 teams are now in groups of four teams. So we now have 16 groups of four, and I'm going to be posting details of those groups on the History of the World podcast.com website. Basically, all you've got to do is go to the social media 
platforms and uh, basically if you vote in the polls that are posted there then we will add up the the totals at the end of the week and whoever finishes in the top two places will advance to the knockout round so each week we're going to have a different group so this is going to take place initially over the first 16 weeks of volume four uh, if all goes according to plan and each week we're going to take those four teams that are in the group and condense it down to two and your votes will determine who goes through and uh, whoever goes through will go will progress to the knockout rounds which will come uh, later in uh, 2022 obviously if you're listening to this podcast uh, in the future um, after it's been posted then uh, this will be somewhat irrelevant um, but you may still be able to go to the history of the world podcast.com website and see the results well group a is coming up this week so uh, i believe um, on monday i should be posting uh, the poll so that you can get started with your voting and uh, group a this week uh, the draw was made and these are the teams in group a we have the hepthalites we have the mochi we have the guptas and we have the Thebans. Now, all you got to do is you've got to pick your favourite. And that's it. It couldn't be easier. So there's no excuse for you not to take part. Now, just to give you a bit of a, an inside look as to who these teams are, so you may not be familiar with them all. Um, the Hephthalites. So they've all been mentioned in, in previous uh, History of the World podcast episodes. But the Hephthalites... Uh, are like a semi, semi-nomadic steppe culture. And they may well be related to the Huns, but they they advanced uh, towards the Indian subcontinent and they were very... Uh, they, were, they were quite problematic for the late Sasanian Persians and also for the Gupta dynasty of India, which is interesting because we can see that the Guptas are in the same group as the Hephthalites. So we see these nomadic steppe culture people now in in sort of in conflict with the Guptas. So you may be able to go back and listen to the Gupta episodes and uh, find out a little bit more about both cultures. The Guptas themselves are quite a celebrated ancient culture of the Indian subcontinent. Um, probably the greatest, um, the, the most well-established greatest ancient culture of India. And um, they're responsible for a golden age in, in Indian culture. Um, and um, the other two teams we've got are the Mochi, who are a Peruvian culture. Um, if you remember, we spoke about them. They, they produce these great monumental architectures, sort of these pyramids um, in uh, northern Peru, sort of in the aftermath of the Chabin culture, which we spoke of in volume two. Um, and uh, also we've got the Thebans. Now, the Thebans are a Greek culture who uh, basically they supplanted the Spartans and the Athenians as the dominant Greek city-state culture um, in the aftermath of the Peloponnesian War. So the most probably the most famous Greek city-states, Athens and Sparta, basically punched themselves out on each other and it was the Thebans who took control in the 4th century BCE of the of of sort of Greek politics they were at the forefront they were the leaders 
Um, so all you got to do, just basically go to the social media pages, vote over the course of the week for whoever is your favourite, who the team that you want to advance into the knockout stages, into the last 32 teams which will take place, those knockout stages in 2022. So it's either the Hetherites, the Mochi, the Guptas or the Thebans. Listener messages and reviews. The first message this week comes from Eric G. Young, who's put, um, I am an avid and I suppose at this point long-term fan, a long-time fan of the podcast. I'm also a proud Hot World Illuminati member. I really enjoyed your most recent episode about the Mississippian culture. I grew up in southern Illinois, not far from Cahokia, and have visited the site many times. It's a culture that is often overlooked. So thanks for presenting the episode. I did have a couple of critiques, however. First, for the first um, quarter to half of the episode, you sounded almost like you were whispering. Not sure if that was intentional or not. Uh, Later, your tone returned to a normal level. Secondly, I'm not digging the new voiceover that introduces a new segment within the episodes. The previous voiceover was less godlike in how it sounded, making it easier to understand than the new one. I hate to criticise because I love your podcast and know it's a lot of hard work, but I thought you might appreciate some feedback on this. As ever, we hot worlders love your podcast and I'm excited to hear the new episodes yet to be released. Thanks, Eric. Well, look, I mean, um, to be honest with you, I think um, many people are uh, are scared to criticise because they feel like it might be taken the wrong way. Um, in reality, if people don't write in and, and sort of point out things that they're concerned about, then it doesn't give me the opportunity to correct it and it doesn't give me an opportunity to review my own work. And I um, I will listen to my podcast in a certain uh, fashion and it may not be the way that other people do. So if there's a problem with any of the podcast episodes and uh, you don't let me know, then I may never know. So I do sincerely appreciate any feedback. It, it may give me a chance to correct it. And, and as ever also, what it does do, and I think last time I received a, a similar sort of critique of, the, of one of the podcast episodes, I did actually um, put it out there to the wider audience. And, and, and there were many people who were kind enough to come back to me and let me know if they were experiencing a similar problem. So... Um, it does give me that opportunity. So if anyone else has had any issue with the Mississippian culture episode, um, I will enlighten um, all of you. There are a number of new production techniques that I have been undertaking in the last two or three weeks. So um, so there, there's subtle changes that I've made that may, um, may not be working as well as I maybe had, had first hoped. And, and obviously um, you will have noticed... Um, that I'm using a new voice of God, and uh, and I had to sort of search quite high and low for this uh, voice of God. Is that you know? It's I mean I don't know if any of you go out walking or anything like that, but it's very hard to bump into someone that's got that voice of God, and then uh, certainly then employ their services. Hang on, hang on. Has, has anyone said something about me? Because I, I've overheard you talking, and um, you know, I don't need to do this gig. You know, I, I was offered uh, X Factor. I was offered a number of different jobs. I didn't have to come and do the History of the World podcast. Well, no, c- come on, don't be like that. I mean, you don't... 
you know, you don't have to work here. You know, I, I thought it would be good for you. I thought it would be good for your career. Well, I know I'm going to be going to, uh, to bigger and, and better places one day. I'm, this is just a stopgap for me, so... OK, OK. You, you can get back in your box now. Don't worry. Sorry, Eric. Um, you know, what can you do? I mean, he's got the voice for it, hasn't he? So, like, I think I've just got to put up with his bad attitude, but... Um, anyway, we'll, we'll see how we get on and if he needs replacing, that's what we'll do. Mark Vinnett of the History of North America podcast has, has written in and put, uh, Hello Chris, I hope you're well. Today I enjoyed your special Snorri Stortlison episode and realised that I had not yet given your podcast a review on Apple. I therefore just gave you the following five-star ranking and positive review on Apple Podcasts. Um... Top-notch research, production and presentation of the incredible story of human history of the world. The genial host takes the listener on an incredible journey by delivering a show that is very interesting, informative and entertaining. Bravo. Um, I would really appreciate, Chris, if you could uh, consider uh, doing the same for my podcast. Every little bit helps. Well, I'll tell you what we did. We... Um, we advertised the History of North America podcast, I think, earlier in the year. And then I don't mind plugging it again. It's a very good production. And uh, I would encourage listeners, uh, especially those of you who are interested, I think, in the Mississippian culture and Cahokia. Um, if you were interested in that subject matter, then I'm sure Mark Vinette will, um, will elaborate on those subject matters uh, for you as well. So... Uh, go along, listen to the History of North America podcast with your host, Mark Vinette. Thank you, Mark, for the message. Thomas Simonian wrote in and said, Hey, Chris, I just want to say thanks for your work and dedication to history and generosity in sharing your knowledge and your, wor your work hard to understand and pass on. Oh, you work hard to understand and pass on. Sorry, I'm misreading that. I beg your pardon, Thomas. Um, I love history, especially ancient through medieval, and can't wait to start Volume 4. Here we are, Volume 4. I'm very excited to hear what you have to say on the history of Japan because of their wonderfully unique and rich culture and history. Thank you for all you do for us listeners. Uh, cheers. Well, yeah, uh, Japan is going to be a great journey, isn't it? We're going to be exploring a very, as you've identified, unique culture, and um, I can't wait to get stuck into that. But it's going to be... Uh, sometime later, we've got to complete this journey um, throughout Middle East history, um, especially with the rise of the Islamic uh, caliphates and, in turn, the emergence of the Turkic cultures into these lands. And then, obviously, we're going to have to go back and talk about the history of the Byzantine Empire and bring it up to date with the Ottoman Turks, who are going to be dominant in this area um, in a few centuries from now. And also then we're going to need to go back and look at the emergence of the European medieval nations and their, the part that they played in the papal crusades into the Holy Land. And uh, so, so we're going to keep, be, we're going to be going around in circles, basically. We're going to keep going back in time and forward and back in time until we've told all the stories, all these fascinating medieval stories. So uh, Volume 4 is going to be... Um, it's going to be a bit of a roller coaster, but I can't wait to get into it. Reviews now from uh, first one from HMS JAPH via Apple Podcasts, United States of America, eagerly catching up. As usual, I came late to the party for this one, having listened 
to a number of other history podcasts. This one is currently in my top three favourites, along with the history of ancient Greece and the history of Rome. I'm only on volume one so far, but I'm loving the material, the in-depth detail and the way the information is laid out with each episode building on the last. Chris does a great job researching the material and his humble, yet in my opinion, expert presentation keeps me engaged and wanting more. As mentioned, eagerly catching up and hope to see more to come. Thank you, thank you for that uh, very kind uh, review. Walker Erica from the USA has put one of my favourite podcasts. I just discovered it recently. I've been listening to it every weekend for a few months now, trying to catch up to the current ones. Easy to listen to and fun and educational. Thank you, uh, Walker Erica. And then uh, uh, Gannicus Capua um, from Ghana. I can't remember receiving a review from Ghana. Um, has put good stuff, very educative. Is that a word? It's, it should be if it isn't. Uh, each episode just gets better. Keep up the good work. Greetings from Ghana. Well, I'm thrilled to be getting uh, a review from Ghana. And, and I apologise if I have received one from Ghana before, but um, I can't recall it. And I'm thrilled to be getting one now. So thank you so much for that wonderful review. Now, if you want to support the History of the World podcast, you can. Um, if you go to the History of the World podcast.com website, uh, you can click on the Patreon link and sign up to make monthly contributions to the podcast. And you can also explore the rewards that we give out to our to our benefactors who we are so grateful to and uh, without you I wouldn't be able to invest so much in literature in equipment and make this podcast as good as possible and uh, we have a new member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati to uh, to uh, welcome in this week uh, his name is Dan Garcia you are now inducted as a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati which is uh, an honour bestowed on anyone who makes a financial contribution to the podcast. So if you want to be a part of the Illuminati, you want to hear your name mentioned on the podcast, and you want to be able to enjoy some of those wonderful rewards that we give out, gifts and opportunities, then please do go to the History of the World podcast Illuminati um, um, tab on the website and also um, go to the Patreon link. And see what you can uh, see what you can do for us there. See if you can help us to take this podcast to the next level. Don't forget, of course, to go and vote in the History of the World podcast Ancient World Cup. You heard the teams earlier that made it into Group A, and who we are voting for this week. The results will be um, bo- both posted on the website, um, on social media, and also announced during next week's episode. Um, Next week's episode is going to be on the Umayyad Caliphate, so we're going to find out what happens next, why there's this great schism in in Islamic uh, religion uh, that we see this day between Sunnis and Shias, um, how that all came about. Um, We're going to see the origins of that as well, and then we're going to talk about how 
basically Islamic culture really spread out from uh, right from this huge expansive area across from uh, uh, the lands of eastern Persia right through to the Maghreb. So that's going to be explored in next week's episode. Until then, have a great week, everyone. Stay safe, stay well, and be good. The History of the World Podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.